0: Should I preach when on a weekly basis we have such excellent preaching? Even when Father Martin is not preaching, we get to hear from Father Andrew, from Michael Strachan, excellent and faithful preachers in their own right. As I've considered my own modest contribution this morning, my only justification is based in Father Martin's generous and gracious heart. His invitation to me stems from his vision that people's gifts be developed and used. And for that, I am humbled and grateful. Whoever would be first must be least of all and servant of all. These are the difficult words we have meditated on over the past month in our continuous lectionary readings through the Gospel of Mark. Today, we are confronted once again with this idea. Why? What does it mean to be servant of all? What is a good theology of service? We might be surprised to find James and John, having heard Jesus' teachings, putting themselves forward to sit on either side of Jesus in glory. What a question they ask. Uh, we would like you to do whatever we ask of you. Uh, let us sit at your right and left sides. I, I picture James and John taking their caps off and wringing them in their hands and pushing each other forward. No, you ask. And uh, we're not quite sure why they ask for this privilege. Uh, Perhaps they wanted an advisory role uh, to sit in in Jesus' cabinet. Perhaps it was reform they were looking after, health care or educational (laughs) reform. Their forward and brash self-promotion might be pardoned if we hadn't already observed the argument among the disciples pertaining to who was to be the greatest among them. I must assume that they either didn't learn from that lesson in Capernaum, or they've cooked up a new strategy. Forget about arguing with the rest of the disciples. Go straight to the man himself. That's how you get ahead. Jesus' gracious response points out the flaws in their thinking. First, they are asking the wrong question. If one wants to be with Jesus in his glory, he must be with him in his suffering. To drink the cup or to be baptized is to partake in the way of Christ's suffering. I think the audience of Mark, aware of the sacramental language of the drink and baptism, is made aware of the meaning of what Jesus is saying in ways that perhaps James and John are not aware, and we get a privileged insight into what Jesus is saying. The sacraments as reenactments of Christ's suffering are here pointed out as the path James and John must take if they are to realize the kind of closeness to Jesus they desire. James and John are not deterred, We're fine with that. Bring it on. Here, Jesus continues to correct their errant thinking. Having cleared up any misgivings about what discipleship means, Jesus promises them that they will indeed partake in the drink and baptism of Christ's suffering. The second flaw in their thinking now has to do with their understanding of Jesus himself. The brothers have assumed that Jesus' mission has been to establish his authority and power. Therefore, it would be appropriate in their eyes to hitch their wagons to this rising star. What Jesus reveals, though, in verse 40, is that his submission to the Father is diametrically opposed to even the appearance of authority. Jesus' earthly existence was predicated on serving others even to the point of suffering and death. Jesus, in verse 40, does not even presume to know the plans of God the Father. Even though in his divine nature, he has access to such knowledge in his person, he takes upon himself the mantle of servant rather than the mantle of authority. You can imagine that in the close-knit community of Jesus' disciples, they must have overheard the brothers' application. The disciples are indignant with James and John. Even so, I do not think they are indignant for the right reasons. It is not because they have a superior theology that they are indignant, they are only sorry for themselves that James and John have cut in line. So Jesus gathers everyone around. It's time for a Bible lesson. Jesus is not about authority in the way that the rulers of the world are about authority. Instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. It is the same master idea of these central chapters of Mark. It is an upside-down kingdom, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the theology of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is what the disciples have bought into, whether they realize it or not. Any expectations they have beyond this are wrong-headed and short-sighted. In this teaching from Jesus, we gain an insight into Jesus the theologian, His self-identity and the urgency of his mission is informed by one of our other readings today. Isaiah 53 is quoted by Jesus at the end of his teaching. He is to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53 is one of the epicenter passages of the Old Testament. It is a song about a servant who suffers excruciatingly, is shamed, ridiculed, and rejected. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 suffers voluntarily and vicariously, giving up his life for the benefit of others. Isaiah 53.10 specifies that his soul makes an offering for sin. The centrality of Isaiah 53 in the teaching of Jesus and the church's understanding of his life and ministry cannot be overestimated. Undermining the prominent expectation that the Messiah would usher in the glorious kingdom, Isaiah 53 speaks of a messianic figure that suffers and dies for for the sins of his people. This counterintuitive display of service and suffering runs counter to what people expected in terms of political power or military might. In actuality, though, through service and suffering, God established through the death of his son a new kingdom that far exceeds what one could have imagined regarding power, might, and authority. Jesus, carrying out the role of the suffering servant, chose to do something far greater than establish an earthly kingdom. He established a comprehensive kingdom over earthly and spiritual realms. His suffering and death inaugurated a new kingdom with power over sin and death ratified through his resurrection. Jesus understands his own ministry as a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and says as much in Mark 10. By extension, he would have his own disciples follow in his footsteps to continue on humbly serving others. The measure of greatness, therefore, Is not accumulated power, prestige, or privilege. Quite the opposite. Jesus measures his own ministry by the standard of serving others. It is the measure he holds up for his disciples. The order of the kingdom of God consists in the measure of service. I call this a difficult teaching not because it is difficult to understand. We can make sense of the teaching well enough. As a simple working definition, service as Jesus defines it here is to do that which brings benefit to others. That which is of the highest value is not determined by the number of people under my authority, but by the number of people who gain genuine benefit from my humility. Where the difficulty enters is that this teaching runs counter to our human nature. Humility, servitude, divesting ourselves of resources such as time, money, and energy are things we go to great lengths to avoid. It is in human nature to seek our own welfare and to promote ourselves. This leads me to consider two ways in which misunderstandings of this idea of the least being the greatest and the greatest being the least pull us away from truly embracing the heart of Jesus' teaching. I confess that an Aristotelian ethical reasoning is at work here, the virtue of service stands between two vices at opposite extremes. We are polled in our affections and desires to either seek our own greatness or to act in servile ways, neither of which achieve the great virtue Jesus sets before us. To illustrate my first point, let me draw upon my work environment. I teach seventh graders at Clapham School. I really delight in the sense of humor students have as they enter the teen years. I often hear any of my students, when they line up uh, to leave class or something, say something like this, particularly the one who winds up in the back of the line. The last will be first, so I will be greater than you in heaven. Now, this joking is all in fun, and it really isn't fair to pick on them for social commentary. But at one level, I think it's hilarious to see them desperately trying to leverage scripture to make sense of things like fairness, inequality, position, and the like. If everyone wants to be first in line, then if I wind up at the end of the line, I can at least play the Jesus card. (laughs) But at another level, I think this impulse reveals this tendency we have to find in ourselves the motivation to serve in an economy of rewards. The thinking goes, if I want to be great, if I want to accumulate power or prestige or pride, according to what Jesus says right here, I'll serve better or at least more than anyone else. This thinking, though, completely derails the project at the very outset. If a person's attitude is self-focused, this is not the kind of service Jesus demonstrated nor what he calls for. This misunderstanding can lead to very productive acts of service, but begins with improper motives. A second misunderstanding is to do any and every act of service available to a person. There's a slavishness to do a job, any job, regardless of the genuine goodness it might aim to achieve. doesn't matter what's done. If it's service, it's good enough for God. But is it possible that there are many things that are done for God that are trivial at best or counterproductive at worst? Here are acts of service that do not pretend to accumulate glory on oneself, but are empty acts in and of themselves. If we are prone to vice in one direction, to promote ourselves in our acts of service, this other tendency to vice is, to sh- is a show of service without the kind of intentionality that genuinely seeks the welfare of others. In both cases, it is a misguided affection or desire that undermines the act of service. It is important to consider the heart here because acts of service themselves differ not in in what is actually done, but in the manner in which they are done. What one person does with the right attitude can be done by another person with the wrong attitude, and the one has done something great, while the other has missed the mark. I find it interesting that Jesus puts this principle out there, but does not then list examples of what he would like to see them do. It's very open for acts both great and small. The heart of the matter is actually not the act itself. But the desire to bring about the welfare of others. We tend to slide away from this center virtue, that which is genuinely virtuous in one of these two ways, pro- promoting self through service or accumulating meaningless acts of service. Between this two, these two is a narrow path on which a person serves others for the benefit of others. Jesus, in his divine power, was able to walk this narrow path consistently without falling into either error. Jesus' sacrifice for sins has freed us and enabled us to properly serve others. Through his power and example, we may now think correctly about opportunities to serve, to seek out relentlessly that which would help another person to grow and flourish. I would finally like to just touch on one other of uh, today's readings, Hebrews 5. So far, we have located the theology of service in the life and death of Jesus and considered our own service as a response to his empowerment and example. But Hebrews 5 shows us something even more about Jesus in his power, in his current role on our behalf. This passage shows us the role he serves as a priest, mediating on our behalf before the Father. Today, at this very moment, Jesus continues to carry on in his role of service, bringing our concerns, prayers, confessions before our Heavenly Father. His kingly rule is not one Marked by domineering overlordship, but one marked by service. I think this rounds out our considerations of a biblical theology of service. Service was not a role Jesus played in his earthly ministry and then discarded when it was no longer useful. Instead, it is central to our understanding of who Jesus is and to our understanding of God's redemptive plan. For all of this, we must praise him, for we are the beneficiaries of his service to us. He is a God who cares, and he has made us to be a people who care. Amen.